0: Is hell unfair? Carla Broussard, next. Hello and welcome to Focus, the Catholic Answers podcast for living, understanding, and defending your Catholic faith. I'm Cy Kellett, your host, and today we actually tackle what in many ways is probably the most difficult doctrine of Christian faith, uh, the doctrine of hell, of the existence of hell, and of the fact that. Some go there. Uh, It's difficult for emotional reasons. It's difficult for intellectual reasons as well. Like there are good intellectual, strong intellectual objections uh, to hell. And even Thomas Aquinas uh, struggled with this. I would say, well, maybe some of the Thomas will say, no, he didn't struggle. But uh, left uh, a lot of questions unanswered. Let's uh, say that. We're not gonna try to answer all the questions about hell here, we're gonna try to take seriously one question about hell that was sent to us by a listener. That question has to do whether an infinite punishment for a finite sin is fair. Here's Carla Broussard. So thanks for being with us again.
1: Hey, Cy, thanks for having me, brother.
0: Uh, this is a good one because we've been asking people, you know, send us questions if there's something mm-hmm. you want to cover. And a, a man named Joshua did send awesome. us a question. And uh, and so we thought, and it, it seemed like a perfect question for you. So we thought we'd ask you here to answer. It. Okay. Uh, I was wondering if you might consider addressing on the show the question of how can a finite sin incur an infinite punishment in hell? To elaborate, the punishment seems disproportionate to the act.
1: Yes. Okay, yes, we... a common common question, and it's often posed as an objection to the Christian belief in hell, the disproportionate, apparent disproportionate nature right. between or the disproportionate relationship between the everlasting punishment of hell and and the sin that is committed, or as he puts it, the infinite punishment and the finite act itself. Right. This is one reason, among others, that some will give to try and show that hell is an injustice. It's unjust. Mm-hmm. So either you're going to have to you know, deny Christianity or just say hell doesn't exist. Like God's goodness necessarily precludes Hell or God's yeah. justice necessarily precludes hell. This is actually one of the several arguments that David Bentley Hart puts forward in his book that all shall be saved. All oh, right, I find, where yeah. he argues for hell not being a reality, and he makes that strong claim that God's goodness is logically incompatible with the existence of hell. And one of the arguments he put forward puts forward is this very argument. And this is actually an objection that St. Thomas Aquinas considers in the supplement to Summa Theologiae Question 99, Article 1. It's one of the several objections to hell that he poses to himself, okay. and he provides some answers. So in answering this objection, I'm going to be looking to St. Thomas Aquinas as our guide right, and, ref- and thinking through how we might answer this.
0: Uh, uh, David Bentley Hart—he he doesn't just argue that there's no hell. He also seems to imply that those of us who believe that there is <laughs> <laughs> are terrible people. Indeed, he does. He He's does not very nice to us. <laughs> he does
1: use his return his rhetorical flirt. Um, flair there and he has a a, lot of it he's a really
0: good writer yeah okay so let me give you the objection the way thomas uh okay okay because we got the way joshua posed it but it's essentially the same Same one so let's take a look at uh, what thomas says and, and this is in one of his objections Given that we have a finite life with limited information to make our decisions, how is an infinite punishment uh, not infinitely disproportionate? Shouldn't the punishment be proportional to transgression? Actually, that's not Thomas's words. That's the, the <laughs> that's the way that you wrote it to
1: me. Yeah, that was a summary of Josh, of Joshua's argument, yeah. yeah. Okay, so, sorry, want me to give you Thomas's words? Yeah, th- let's, let's go okay, with Thomas's let's, yeah. text.
0: Sorry, Thomas Aquinas, I gave you Joshua's argument. Uh, Thomas says, it would seem that an eternal punishment is not inflicted on sinners by divine justice, for the punishment should not exceed the fault. According to the measure of the sin shall the measure also of the stripes be. That's from Deuteronomy. Now, now fault is temporal. Therefore, punishment should not be eternal. That's Thomas.
1: Yes, that's Thomas. And with, with this objection, we, first of all, the first thing we have to do is to expose the flawed assumption that's driving this objection. So like, for example, as the objection is posed, we have to ask, well, what is, what do you mean by infinite punishment? And what they, what they're getting at is the everlasting duration of the punishment. And so the objection amounts to, you know, the, the everlasting punishment being disproportionate to the temporary punishment, I mean, the temporary duration of the sin committed. Yeah. So okay. as Aquinas uses, you know, the eternal, the punishment should not be eternal. What he means by eternal is just everlasting, not the eternity of God, right? Yeah. So the objection is saying, listen, this eternal punishment, this everlasting punishment is disproportioned to the amount of time that it took to commit the sin. So okay. notice it's measuring the punishment based on the duration of the sin. That's the flawed assumption that's driving, or the flawed principle that's driving the objection. And the reason why that's false, because if the duration of punishment, and this is something Aquinas points out in his response to the objection, if the duration of punishment had to correspond to the duration of the offense, well then it would be unjust, say, to put a murderer in prison for 20 years or for a lifetime or however long, because it only took him a few minutes to commit the crime, (laughs) but that's absurd, right? right? So we can see the flaw in that governing principle, that the duration of the punishment has to correspond to the duration of the offense. So that's how Aquinas first meets the objection and saying no that's a that's a flawed principle there that's absurd we don't use that principle to govern what sorts which sorts of punishment we employ to fit the crime. Yeah. Okay? Right. Now Aquinas goes on to articulate the true principle that should govern how we issue punishment. And that is to say the measure of the punishment is due for the sin. Uh, with regard to the gravity of the offense, yeah. the punishment should be measured according to the gravity of the offense. Here's what Aquinas says: the measure of punishment corresponds to the measure of the fault of fault, as regards the degree of severity. So that the more grievously a person sins, the more grievously is he punished. So notice it's not the duration of the sin that's going to determine. The type of punishment. Mm-hmm. It's the gravity of the sin, of the offense, that's going to determine the nature of the punishment. And that's the operating principle here, that's the key principle in Aquinas' mind, and I think he's right here, that it's going to be the gravity of the offense that's going to determine the kind of punishment. So you might say the, it's the internal wickedness of the offense That's going to determine the kind of punishment that's issued. And Aquinas goes and gives this sort of example. He'll say, um, you know, like for sometimes there are some offenses that will merit uh, complete exile from a community, right? Right. If somebody, like in that case, you know, being put into prison or something, you sin against the good of the society, you might get put in prison for a certain amount of time, right? Right. Uh, So some, some offenses are grave enough to exclude one from a society completely. Some are not. And so he uses that as an example to show, listen, it's not the duration of the offense that's going to determine whether you get exiled from the society or not by being put in the prison. It's the gravity of the offense. Have you sinned against the society? Have you offended this common good such that you deserve and merit to be excluded from the society for a a long period of time, right? right? So he's pointing out that we don't even use that principle of the duration of the sin determining the punishment, even within civil society. So too, we should not use that principle when we're talking about offenses against God. It should be the gravity of the offense that's going to determine our analysis of what kind of punishment is due to the offender.
0: Yeah, I got you. So, But uh, that still leaves me with the... um... I'm I'm so limited, how can I commit this? A, a mortal like like how can a mortal sin be that serious? Right,
1: right. That's right. Because now the question is, well, what how is it that a mortal sin is so grave? Yeah. What is it about the right. gravity of a mortal sin that would merit this eternal punishment, right? So yeah, so if the principle is it's the gravity of the offense that determines the punishment, and in Aquinas' mind, it's the gravity of a mortal sin. That's going to merit or demerit, however you wish to, whatever yeah, right, you right, wish right. to use. Yeah. It's, it's the gravity of a mortal sin that's going to merit. One mortal sin, and this is the church's teaching, one mortal sin right. incurs a debt of eternal punishment. All right? Yeah. So what is it about a mortal sin that merits such a debt? Yeah. And so this is where we have to look at the nature of a mortal sin. And Aquinas has a variety of ways in which he analyzes a mortal sin. One way that he analyzes it and shows its gravity is that a mortal sin entails—and he actually says this is the better way. So like when he's articulating the reasons for the justness of eternal punishment for a mortal sin, he's given several of them, right? He gives you like three of them initially, and then he gets to this one, and he says, and this is the better way. So he prefers this reason. This particular—okay. This understanding of mortal sin. Mortal sin entails the choice— to make a creature mm-hmm. one's life's end or go, and not God. Okay. And so Aquinas yeah. is is operating on this view that God is our ultimate life's go, right? Yeah. Philosophers call this a teleological conception of the good of life, right? The whole that's of that's what I life. say too. Amen. I always say it that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> teleological, coming from the Greek word "telos," which <laughs> means end or go. Okay. So our life is ordered to God. We are ordered by nature to God as our ultimate life's end.
0: Right. Okay, so uh, okay. So as long as I have that, I'm on the way. That's I'm right. On the path.
1: only in God can I find my complete happiness, okay? Got it. Well, a mortal sin in Aquinas' understanding and in the church's understanding is a choice that entails choosing some created good in the place of God. In other words... Making some creature my life's ultimate goal yes. instead of God, treating a creature as if it were my life's ultimate good. Right. Instead of God. So it's it entails a turning away from God as my life's ultimate goal, making something else my life's ultimate goal. Got it. Okay. So that's what a mortal sin entails. It entails a direct violation of this ordering. Right? So for it to be
0: mortal sin, I have to it's I have to turn completely away so that from I'm, God. I'm not I'm I don't even though I'm made for this goal, I'm rejecting the goal I'm made for and turning completely to some other goal.
1: Treating some other thing as if it were my life's ultimate goal. Okay, So yeah, sure, you've made a good point. By nature, we're naturally oriented to God as our life's goal. Yeah. But with a mortal sin, I'm using my free will to turn away from God as what he really is. Right. And to treat something else as if it were my life's goal. And a venial
0: sin, like a normal... I'm... I'm maybe muddy in the waters, but I'm not turning. That's away. right. I'm like, still,
1: I am still still look to God as my ultimate life's goal. I'm just approaching or using or pursuing some creaturely good in a disordered way, mm-hmm. right? And the disorder is not such that I'm turning away from God— The disorder is just such that it's inordinate. I'm overindulging a little bit too much contrary to how God wants me to pursue that good, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not making the creaturely good my life's ultimate end, goal, or purpose. Got it. Yeah. Mortal sin entails making a creaturely good my life's ultimate end or purpose. That is a moral disorder of the highest degree because it involves an entire disordering Mm -hmm. Of this, uh, it, it entails a complete disorder of the moral order, because I am i am in completely i viol- am completely violating the order that I have to God as my life's ultimate end. Right. So it's a moral disorder of the highest degree. You can have a moral disorder, like I pursue that that chocolate cake a little bit too much, right? Why you got? But so I still—I still have God as my life's ultimate end. Right. right. Yeah. That's a, dis- a moral disorder, but it's not of the highest degree. No because I still have God as my life's ultimate end. A moral disorder of the highest degree is to completely turn away from God as my life's ultimate end Mm -hmm. and make something else. And then, of course, Aquinas also articulates mortal sin in this way, as destroying the principle of, of order to God as my supernatural end. And that principle of the order to God as my supernatural end is charity, the theological virtue of charity. And mortal sin entails destroying that principle. Yeah. So he uses the example of sight, right? So you can have a, a, a defect, You your sight can be defective insofar as you have trouble seeing, like your, yeah. your sight is hampered. The principle of sight, Aquinas says, is not entirely destroyed there. So you can still see, but it's just hampered, right? right. It's impeded. Although you can also have a scenario where the principle of sight is entirely destroyed, and you're you're blind, and the eye is defective such that you can no, the eyes are defective such that you can no longer see. Yeah. So what Aquinas says there in that scenario, the principle of sight is entirely destroyed. Right? It's irreparable. Whereas, if the principle is still there, I can still see, but it's hampered. I can use nature or art in order to try and. Uh, uh, in order to try to fix the defect, right? Got it. But when the principle's destroyed, it's irreparable. You can't fix the defect except by miraculous intervention, right? Right. And so what Aquinas wants to say is, by way of analogously, the principle by which I'm directed to God as my supernatural end is charity. Mortal sin, by way of divine revelation, entails a destruction of that principle of order, namely charity, and therefore it's not just hampered to where i can get a fixing right it's irreparable
0: okay but but it's not though in the sense that like you think of the the blind man that jesus heals at the pool of siloam like he has grace can overcome even total disability and that is true okay. that is
1: true so grace would be the means by which the repairing could take place yeah but this brings up the question of is god bound to give the grace to repair. But let's set that question off just for a moment, because we have okay. to consider something else. All right. So notice how, for in the mind of Aquinas, a mortal sin entails turning away from God as one life's ultimate end. Right. And because that sin, because that's an offense against that ultimate good, namely God, there is a due punishment for the individual to not have that good. Aquinas has this operating principle that's driving his whole philosophy of punishment is that whenever you sin against a good, against a good, it is due to you to not be able to enjoy that good. If I Ah. sin against the good of the common good of Catholic Answers, guess Mm -hmm. what? They're going to say, see you, Carlo, pack your bags, go home, right? Right. You no longer work here. Right. Because I've offended against the common good of Catholic answers, I can no longer participate in that good. We have the same with society. Murderers get put in jail. Why? Because they've they've sinned against the common good of society so they can no longer participate in that good. So, too, when I turn my back on God, when I turn completely away from God as my life's ultimate good— well, then it's naturally fitting and just that I not participate in that good. Got it. Okay. So there is a debt of eternal punishment due to me for turning away from God as my life's ultimate goal in mortal sin. When I die, right, I that debt of eternal punishment is due to me. And insofar as that debt remains— mm-hmm. Subsequent to death, at every moment I exist, and I have that debt of eternal punishment, which means the debt of for, of being excluded from God as my life's ultimate end, then it is just for God to give that punishment, which is the exclusion from Him as my life's ultimate end. At every moment I exist and that debt remains, it is just for God to issue the punishment whether in this life or in the next. Well, when I die, that debt of eternal punishment remains with me. And so, for the rest of my existence, it is just for God to issue the punishment of eternal punishment, which is separation from Him as my life's ultimate end, because at every moment I am existing, I have that debt of eternal punishment because at every moment I am existing I am turning away from God as my life's ultimate end now this presupposes how my choice of turning away from God has not been repaired in this life right and subsequent to death that choice is fixed due to the irrevocability that's a hard word for me to say as a Cajun irrevocability of the choice of the soul, of the free will, subsequent to death. Now for our listeners out there, if they want to learn more about why that is so, like why is it that a, the, the choice of the free will subsequent to death is irrevocable, I would recommend they read St. Thomas Aquinas and His Summa Contra Gentiles, book, uh, book 4, Chapter 95, Okay. and Dr. Edward Fazer also has a great article online, How to Go to Hell. So that's the presupposed principle, so that subsequent to death, the debt of eternal punishment for that one mortal sin that yeah. has been that's unrepented of, right? that debt of eternal punishment remains. And insofar as the debt of eternal punishment remains, for the rest of my existence, subsequent to death, it is just for God to administer the punishment and to meet that debt. So, or me to pay that debt. Right, right? In, in receiving the just punishment. So that at least shows how it is just for there to be a single mortal sin and for God to administer eternal punishment on account of that one mortal sin.
0: Right.
1: Why? That one mortal sin in turns entails a turning away from God as our life's ultimate goal.
0: Yeah.
1: Subsequent to death, because of the, the irrev- irrevocability of the choice, the debt of eternal punishment remains, and insofar as the debt of the eternal punishment remains, the punishment administered is just. Yeah. this is Aquinas' reasoning in, uh, in, 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 several of his, in several places in his corpus of writing. Now, there's one more aspect of why the, the disorder is irrevocable. Yeah, okay?
0: that's the hard part, I think. That, yeah, that, so there's another. not
1: there's a natural explanation, <coughs> namely the irrevocability of an incorporeal choice, okay? Yeah. The angels choose, they're fixed in their choice. You die with a choice turning away from God, you're fixed with that choice. There's another reason why it's irrevocable, and that is because there is no grace given after death, okay? I'm establishing that it is the case, and then we're going to address, well, is that an injustice on God's part? But that it is the case. First of all, Aquinas teaches in uh, the first part of the second part in Summa Theologiae question 109, article 7. He's answering whether man can rise from sin without the help of grace. And he gives a whole answer. The whole article is the answer is no.
0: No, right. That's the, fundamental basic Christian teaching. Yeah, the you...
1: only way to repent and to, for the disorder of mortal sin to be repaired is by divine grace. That requires like a spiritual resurrection, just like Jesus yep. had to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's going to have to give us a grace of repentance to raise us in a miraculous way from this supernatural death of mortal sin. Okay? Right. Now, we know by way of divine revelation that no grace is given after death. Aquinas uses this in order to articulate why the disorder is irrevocable after death, because no more grace is given. He does this in the supplement, question ninety nine, article one, as well as in book four. Chapter... And you're saying this is
0: a revealed truth that yeah, no this, more grace. Is yeah. Given so,
1: for example, so, some some passages theologians appeal to is John nine four. We read, "We must work the works of Him who sent me." While it is day, uh, night yeah. comes when no one can work. Theologians throughout the centuries have appealed to that as evidence that once we die, yeah. there's no more work to be done. You can't increase and get grace. You can't merit more grace. Nor can you receive graces of repentance because the work is done. And also too, we can appeal to passages that deal with the particular judgment. So Luke chapter sixteen, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. We read how once they die, they immediately receive their lots. You know, Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. The rich man goes to the place of torment. And the rich man and and Abraham says to the rich man, there is this infinite—this chasm that cannot be crossed, which would imply that no grace is given for repentance that would allow to cross the chasm. Mm -hmm. So in this order of providence, by way of divine revelation, we know that God does not give the grace that is needed for repentance from mortal sin subsequent to death. He only does so for some in this life. So that explains why— the debt of eternal punishment is ir- it continues. Why the disorder is irrevocable.
0: Because there's no way for us to bridge that
1: gap or to restore what's dead. You have a You're- natural explanation yeah. is that the incorporeal choice is irrevocable because the body is no longer there with the soul to allow for the soul to change its ultimate course of, of life, right? Mm-hmm. And then we have a supernatural explanation because we— we, we admit God could repair the disorder by grace. God could give the grace of repentance, right? But He doesn't in some cases. We're going to ask, is that unjust or not in a moment? But that the disorder is irrevocable, subsequent to death, is due to God willing not to give the grace of repentance from mortal sin subsequent to death, and that explains why the debt of eternal punishment remains for the rest of the soul's existence. And insofar as the debt of eternal punishment remains for the rest of the soul's existence, it is just for God to administer such punishment and see to it that the soul is not united with him in the beatific vision.
0: Yes. Okay.
1: So that explains the justness of the eternal punishment. But there's one more aspect. Right. I,
0: okay. I uh, at least one more. No. Well, because you're going to have. Well, at some point, and, uh, y- this incorporeal problem gets yes. solved with the resurrection of the body. But you. Y- y- but it doesn't get solved. Well, that's and,
1: one problem. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, but, but Dr. But that, Dr. Edward Fazer actually addresses that, and even St. Thomas Aquinas, when he's dealing with the irrever- irrevocable nature yeah. of the choice, and the, the 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 answer that is given is that the the the. That, sub, that because the choice is already made and in the bodily resurrection, the body is subsumed into. into the very being of the soul, the body can no longer affect the ultimate choice that the soul has made for its life's end, for its ultimate end or goal. The body is completely subject to the soul. That's right. So the yeah. soul and the body come into existence together. Yeah. Yeah which allows for the malleability that, you know, the choosing God, rejecting God, repenting, and choosing God, right? Right. But subsequent to death, the irrevocable nature kicks into play because of the incorporeal choice. And at the bodily resurrection, it's the body that is subsumed into... The very being of the soul and consequently can no longer affect the soul yeah. like it could in this. Which is life. good
0: news for those who are in heaven because the, the body cannot can allow sin.
1: for us to turn away from God. Right. The turning to God as our ultimate life's goal for the blessed in heaven, even with their glorified bodies, is fixed as well. Well, is
0: this an objection then? God should give the grace after death. Ah, there you go. Come
1: on, God. And that's and, that's, and listen, I feel. I feel the emotional uh, struggle with that, right? Yeah, right. Okay. Right. Now, all we have to do in order to articulate the goodness and justice of God is to show why it is not unjust for God to not give the grace right. and repair the disorder. Okay. Okay. So why is it why is it just for God to not give the grace. To state it differently, why is it not unjust? For God not to give the grace, right? Well, it's not an injustice. Here's one reason. It's not an injustice for God not to give the grace needed for the repair of the disorder, because grace is not due to anyone. Ah, okay. That grace... We're not owed it. We're not owed it. It would only... Think about this. It would only be an injustice if grace were due to the soul. But the grace of repentance is not due to the soul. No. And so therefore, it is not an injustice for God not to give the grace of repentance.
0: Right, just like it's not an injustice for you to get not give me a million dollars right now. That's you, correct. You don't, have, you don't owe me that. Yeah, here's,
1: here's what Aquinas says. I'll, I'll, I'll quote Aquinas here. This is from the um, first part of the Summa Theologiae Question 23, Article 5, Response 3, he says this. He's talking about predestination here, but the reasoning he applies to predestination of why God chooses some to give final perseverance to and not others applies to God not giving the grace of repentance, right? For either, either for a person in this life or in the next. So he writes this. Neither on this account can there be said to be injustice in God if he prepares unequal lots for not unequal things. This would be altogether contrary to the notion of justice if the effect of predestination were granted as a debt. So it would only be an in, an injustice for God to give grace of final perseverance to some and not others if predestination were a debt. Yeah. But he's going to deny he owed it. us that. That's right. If it were a debt and not gratuitously, if it were a debt and not a gift. All right. But he goes on and things which are given gratuitously as a gift, a person can give more or less just as he pleases, provided he does, he provided he deprives nobody of his due without any infringement of justice. This is what the master, master of the house said, take what is thine and go thy way. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will? So it is an, it is an, it would be an injustice For God to not give the grace of repentance only if such a grace were due to an individual. Mm -hmm. But it is not due to an individual because such a grace is entirely gratuitous. Yes. Right? And so God is—it is consistent with His goodness and or His justice to give the grace of repentance— or not to give the grace of repentance, because such a grace is not due to an individual. So at every step of the way, we have every aspect of this scenario in complete conformity with the justice of God. We have the mortal sin, which is a turning away from God, which is of the highest moral disorder, and to—how can you— how can you have God as your ultimate life sin when you're turned away from Him as your ultimate life sin, right? Right. So if you're turned away from Him, you've sinned against that ultimate good, and so it's reasonable and just to not be able to have that ultimate good right like if you turn away from society and do things
0: that show you've rejected society you're going to be t- you're not going to be invited to participate in society that's correct and so that's the true of the society of heaven i guess would be. so so it's
1: just that there be a debt of eternal punishment due for that one sin right because if you're turning away from god you're saying i don't ever want you god as my ultimate life's in So that's a debt of forever being excluded from God as your ultimate life sin. That's perfectly just. We have God not giving on this scenario. God doesn't give the grace of repentance to such an individual in this life. Is that an injustice? No, because such a grace of repentance is not due to the individual. So the debt is completely just. That God does not give the grace of repentance is completely in conformity with His justice that the debt of eternal punishment remains subsequent to death due to the irrevocability of the incorporeal choice is completely in accord with the natural mode of the soul separated from the body, that God does not give the grace of repentance to the repair of the disorder subsequent to death is in complete conformity with His justice because such a grace is not due to the soul, and that There is an an eternal punishment administered to the soul is completely just because there is an eternal debt. There's a debt, a forever existing debt of eternal punishment. So there's proportionality between the punishment administered, the everlasting punishment, and the debt of the eternal punishment demerited or merited by the one mortal sin. So at every step of the way, you have justice and no... Aspect in this step and this journey that we've been we've been pursuing, there is at, at no point is there anything in conflict with God's justice, and therefore nothing in conflict with God's goodness. goodness. Yeah. And one last point, I mentioned this right at the end. It is fitting and reasonable that God relate to the departed soul experiencing eternal damnation in accord with its natural mode so this is another reason why it's not an injustice for god to not give the grace of repentance not only because the grace is not due right yes but also because god is relating to the departed soul according to its natural mode of being it belongs to the natural mode of the departed soul to be fixed in its choice of what it's choosing as its ultimate life's end.
0: Yeah, so there's kind of a respect for the...
1: That's the way God has designed the soul, such yeah. that departed from the body, it can no longer redirect its its life's choice, right? Yeah. And what it's going to set its sight on as its ultimate life's end. That's its natural mode of being. And so not only is the grace not due to the departed soul, the grace of repentance, but God is relating to the departed soul that has turned away from him as its ultimate life's goal, wow. and according with its natural mode of being, right. which comports and coheres with God's justice. Once again, there's nothing in that scenario that conflicts with God's justice, because God relates to us according to the natural mode of being. Yes, he does relate to us miraculously sometimes. Sure. But that miraculous intervention, quote-unquote intervention, that's kind of—we can quibble about that, but let's just go with that—that that miraculous intervention of grace is something that is not due to us. Now, keep in mind, all we've done here, Cy, is to show why hell is not in conflict with the justice of God,
0: right? That's but that's an important thing. But it's that's only a, one thing; it doesn't that's answer right. all the questions it, about it, hell. There's
1: still a lot of mystery, a lot right. of darkness of mystery concerning hell, and a lot of other questions that have to be answered. Right. But what we've done here is to show at least that the existence of hell and a, a soul that is eternally damned, definitively separated from God as its ultimate life's end, is not in conflict with God's justice. God can be completely good and just, and at the same time, we can affirm the existence of hell and an eternally departed soul. And so it's just important to make that caveat here. Now, somebody could deny certain things that we've said along the way. Perhaps somebody could deny that it's even possible to turn away from God as one's ultimate life sin. Right. That's what David Bentley Hart argues for in his book, that all shall be saved. That's, some, that's a separate issue that we would have to address, right? Right. But assuming that one can turn away from God as their ultimate life sin, then everything else follows, and at no point do we have anything in conflict with God's justice. Here's my
0: problem with that. If I accept that, then the only possible way to live is, uh, uh, in the light of this knowledge of what can happen to me is like to cling to Jesus, to be constantly repenting, uh, to live in the sacraments. I, I have no choice. I'm going to have
1: to live that way. That is correct because we are entirely reliant upon God's grace. Yeah. In order to achieve our ultimate end of heaven, and we are in, we are entirely reliant upon God's grace to be upheld within the good order to God as our supernatural end. Yep. And also entirely reliant upon God's grace to be brought back into the good, into God's friendship, into grace, when we fall from grace. As St. Paul would say to the Galatians in Galatians 5, 4, you have fallen from grace. We need grace to get back into grace. And so we are entirely reliant, we are radically dependent upon God, not only Mm, for our natural mode of being, which is like life and intellect and will but we are radically entirely dependent upon god's grace mm-hmm. for the supernatural mode of being a christian namely to be have to have charity within our soul directing us to god as our supernatural end so now is the time Turn to Jesus Amen. and trust
0: in him. Uh, now is the time. So maybe in the future, a couple of things. One, we might tackle that David Bentley Hart's question about yep. whether it's even possible to turn all the way away from God. Is mortal sin even possible? But That's then there's the all, there's a, a, another objection. Uh, one that I personally am very unsympathetic to, but very many people find uh, convincing. Well, God could just uh, allow the soul to be extinguished. It wouldn't have to Annihilation. Uh, right. Yep. I, I don't. I c- cannot imagine how God could annihilate the soul of a rational creature,
1: but Aqu- Aquinas has an answer to that one as well. So we'll, we'll do that. We'll do yeah. that in the future. Yeah, okay. and also too another another reason that people give for the injustice of hell is yeah. to say, well, isn't it? In, isn't it unjust? Isn't it? I should say, no, uh, isn't it? That's how they say it. <laughs> Come on, that's how people say, it. isn't it unjust? <laughs> isn't it unjust for God to create someone yeah. knowing that he will permit oh, that's the a great defect objection. Right. that leads to the mortal sin, that leads to the debt yeah. of eternal punishment? You know, is God unjust for even creating the person in the first place? Yeah. And so we're getting into the issue of what is God bound to create, if he's bound to create at all, oh, and all of these, which are very... Uh, good questions to ask and there are ways in which we can answer them. So these are great okay, so, things that yeah. we can save for future episodes. Yeah,
0: and it's good to know. We it's, the, Don't treat this uh, as if Carlo is yes. trying to answer every question. There's a, a lot of good questions still out there and we'll uh, address them. Carlo, you're going to be like our hell guy now. <laughs> like, hey, there's another question on hell. Get Carlo. Congratulations, Carlo. I do
1: not want <laughs> to be bent on hell. <laughs> That was an intentional pun on Bentley, David Bentley Hart. (laughs) That was good. Okay. Thanks, Carlo. God bless you, brother. You too.
0: Ultimately, I think we end up having to believe in hell if we believe a couple things. If we believe that the scripture is the word of God, and if we believe the church, the Catholic church is the authentic interpreter of scripture, uh, it's an inescapable conclusion. we could, with, with just one or the other uh, belief, probably not, but take it all in sum. And this difficult teaching is one that we have to confront. We confront it with trusting God, knowing that nothing God does is not is other than perfectly good, perfectly just, perfectly merciful, perfectly loving. That's who God is. And He does not do otherwise. That doesn't mean that we understand His goodness, His justice, His love, His mercy fully. But we will understand it and uh, we, the truth is too, we will rejoice in it. The greater our understanding of it, the more we will rejoice in it. Whatever we may think or feel now. We'd love to hear from you. Focus at catholic.com is our email address, as you noticed. If you have an idea for an upcoming episode we might do it if it's a good idea uh don't forget to like and subscribe on youtube that really helps to grow the podcast also don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast if you just listen to it say on apple podcast spotify stitcher if you subscribe you'll be notified when new episodes are available and i will appeal to you again as our friends uh, and listeners if you can support us financially it really does help Uh, Right now, I don't think we're covering the bills here. Other things that we do, other donors are covering the bills, uh, and we'd like to get to the point where this program uh, can pay for itself uh, so that we can continue to do it so it'll be on stable footing. You can do that by going to givecatholic.com, givecatholic.com, and let us know why you gave. I'm Cy Kellett, your host. We'll see you next time, God willing, right here on Catholic Answers Focus.